Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead, a podcast hosted by me, Brittany Ashley, where once a month I interview a new guest who has lost their mother, and then we do a deep dive into a pop culture moment with authentic dead mom representation. If you're jonesing for more dead mom content after this episode, you can listen to all of season one if you have not already, or you can go to the Patreon at patreon.com slash deadmomcast to listen to episode extras. So for the first time ever in this podcast's very short history, I interviewed a guest without them sitting across from me. But I really, really wanted her on the podcast, so I made an exception. This episode's guest is Rosalind Warren. Roz is a writer and journalist in the UK, formerly the senior news reporter for BuzzFeed News in London. She has done so much incredible work from her expose uncovering the exploitation of mothers on healthcare benefits to being an advisor to reporters on how to properly write about domestic violence. She is a force in the journalism world. Rosalind is one of eight children, and she was 16 when her mom, Anne, passed suddenly at the age of 52 in 2006 from complications with alcohol. My parents split when I was six years old. We had moved into a new sort of council house and um, she was a single parent. I didn't know my dad. I mean, I technically knew who he was, but I had no relationship with him. He had no idea what was happening in any of our lives. My mother had eight children. Um, I'm one of seven. I'm the third youngest and... So we grew up in a pretty small three-bedroom house um, in in the outskirts of London, uh, in a county above London called Hertfordshire. And we grew up with relatively little money and sort of lived in a in a council house, uh, which for, I don't know what the equivalent of the US, but sort of social housing. She wouldn't cook individual dinners for everyone. It would be sort of almost platter <laughs> style because there were just so many of us. So um, <laughs> cooking a ton of food, leaving it on the side. And if you were the slowest one downstairs, <laughs> then there wasn't much food left for you. So <laughs> uh, it was, it was uh, a happy household uh, despite um, a lack of money. We had two dogs growing up, so a big part of our uh, how we would spend our time would be big family walks with the dogs. And my mum, you know, that was a rare you know, a time where she would be sort of in her element, her and all her kids growing up with the dogs running around. She was very interested in politics, and so I have a lot of memories of her just sort of surrounded by newspapers and, and you know, listening to BBC Radio 4. And she also studied for a degree when she was um, in her 40s. She didn't get to go when she she had all of her kids. So knowing that she she undertook a degree while with such a huge responsibility of all her kids is, you know, that is something that um, I thought was really pretty, pretty great. I have a lot of happy memories of her talking to me about my school and uh, my work and like what what I wanted to do, you know, when I was older and, and the dreams that I had and, and all of that. And I think, um, I think that's, that's something like losing a parent, having a, uh, like constant rock, someone that would happily listen to you <laughs> talk nonstop about a bunch of shit all the time or about your dreams, about all of that and, and have your back. You know, that was my mom growing up. She was very supportive of, uh, the work that I did in school and my writing and yeah, lots of small moments that sort of made her up. 
as a person rather than sort of three standout memories. And I don't know if how other people's brains work when they think of memories of, of some that they've lost, but mine is like an accumulation of like 50 and they all blend and I don't know what day was what or what time, but um, mm-hmm. a sort of constant of um, small moments where she she would maybe write a little note encouraging me or I don't know, lots of small memories like that. But she was a good yeah. person, yeah. But, you know, that, that shifted a lot as, as I got older. When did you notice that she was kind of struggling health-wise? I guess uh, it was actually a Millennium. It was the Millennium Fireworks. So, yeah, 2000. And I just have the earliest memory I have is walking down to sort of the high street fireworks, um, which were all very exciting at the time. How old was I? About 10? About 10? I just remember my mom sort of barely being able to walk in a straight line. Uh, she was being very snappy to my older sister, who was about, she must have been about 14. On reflection, absolutely, she she was drunk at this point. And it was me, my older sister and my two younger siblings who would have been sort of six, seven or something. Um, and I just remember walking and being like, what is up with mom? You know, this is weird. And why why can't she keep it together? Um, and I was only 10 years old at this point. And I remember that being the first sign where something was clearly wrong. And then sort of over the next couple of years, you know, I would find her sort of passed out from alcohol in her room. It was worrying at times because, you know, she'd still have a lit cigarette and surrounded by newspapers or she would have a bath and she would be drinking and fall asleep in in the bath. She did have sort of suicidal uh, tendencies at, at some points. That wasn't something I witnessed personally, so I can't speak to that, but older siblings have told me about that and I certainly saw the surrounding moments that led to led to those sort of final straw moments for her you would come home you wouldn't know if she was drunk or not you would come into the house and you don't know what mood you're going to get from a parent who suffers from an addiction anyone that has a parent has an addiction knows that if you come home from school that day you don't know what side of your parent you're going to get that day and so um it was constantly grappling on the edge of of never knowing what what side of your what side of my mum was I going to see today, and that was const- that was just such also just a hassle. I was a teenager, you know, I was thirteen years old, um, and my most of my friends had very normal issues uh, with their parents, and my yeah my mother's was was not necessarily normal. So yeah, I remember reading in your Guardian piece that that you felt kind of this pressure even at a young age to hide kind of like the truth about what was going on with your mom from other, you know, classmates or other friends. And I'm just curious kind of like what that was like to shoulder that much pressure as a teenager. It's embarrassing. Like, you know, you you, you don't want your friends to know. And also I think there's a certain definite stigma around um, addiction. You know, having having dysfunctional parents is one thing and people can make lots of jokes about that, you know, silly, dumb parents, you know, being too controlling, doing this, doing that. But an addiction, alcoholism, a drug addiction, it's embarrassing. And, you, you know, you're a teenager, you want, and I, I also went to, a, I went to a good state school, everyone's parents were normal and they, the, the biggest issues that they had were their parents, you know, made them, would ground them over the weekend. So, you know, so dealing with an alcoholic parent, it's, it is embarrassing. And also, just to clarify, it's one of those things which it's deeply embarrassing as a teenager because that's the formative years where you are trying to get your ground in and trying to make social, you know, go have a social life and have friends. But also it took me in like an entire decade to write about 
my mum's alcoholism because it's embarrassing as an adult because even then the stigma doesn't go away and I didn't want my mum to be defined by alcoholism and I didn't want to be defined as a child of an alcoholic so yeah this the stigma around it is 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 very real yeah I'm curious because in the U.S. drinking is just very heavily glorified from like advertising to social events what's the culture like in the UK around around all that Drinking is definitely a part of British culture. Um, it's uh, <laughs> it's um, it, it very heavy in terms of social. And that's the other thing. You don't want to talk about alcoholism because then you become a bore. You know, that that's the sort of mentality. It's, it's, it's like you people would not want to address alcoholism because it's so ingrained in British culture, pub culture. Anyone that ever, you know, you visit the UK and there's a pub on every single corner, anywhere that you go. Binge drinking, we're known as a country for binge, teenage binge drinking and the age for alcohol here that you can start drinking. God, I really should know. Is it 16 or 18? 18. <laughs> it's because, but then I was drinking from the age of 15. You know, that was that, the reason I don't. And also very lax. I know that it's so strict in America, 21 and ID and, you know, you get a lot of trouble for it. But in the UK, um, you know, we would go to pubs at the age of 16, despite the age being 18, because no one kind of gave a shit. So um, like bouncers would be on the door, maybe. And even then you'd use very obviously fake IDs. So drinking culture is, is absolutely glorified in the same way. She was a good person who clearly suffered from like deep levels of depression that obviously manifested in, in her alcoholism. So there were times where she was a really, really brilliant mother and amazing. And, you know, she would be so encouraging with me at school, really thoughtful with all of her children. But it was also just, it, it really was hit and miss in, in what, what version you would see of mum that day. Next day it might be, she would be really sort of emotionally manipulative or, or, or bite one of my sister's heads off for saying something. Or she was never, she, to be clear, she was never violent and, and she was never um, emotionally cool, you know, to a, a serious degree. It was always just like uh, sort of snappy remarks, you know. I think I think her depression was actually something that, you know, I can talk about alcoholism now, but her depression is still something I still can't, sort of wrap my head around and it really did it did affect her her parenting and something I addressed in that in that Guardian piece is that you don't want as much as you you have a lot of complicated feelings towards a parent you don't want them to be defined by that illness you you know my mum had many layers to her and she was still a good parent but it was just uh yeah it certainly shaped my childhood in a way that I, I think is quite led me to be who I am today and and all of that but it was it was difficult yeah I was studying for GCSEs. I had a good set of mates at school. I went to, like, I, I really liked my school. Um, and uh, living-wise, it was me and my older brother and two younger siblings. So there were four of us in the house and my, our mum. And so I had, yeah, relatively, again, like, sort of straightforward. I was at school studying for exams, good friends, going to house parties. Um, I didn't have a boyfriend at that point, I don't think, but uh, <laughs> trying to date. Yeah, yeah, that was what 16-year-old what Ross was like at the time. But at this time when you're 16, do you feel like you kind of like mastered being able to kind of hide what was really going on at home from from the people at school? 
Um, yeah, I think I did a pretty good job in um, <laughs> pretending that my stuff was together and all, all, all okay. Um, I think there were a couple of mates that maybe sort of knew a little bit more, but nothing to the extent I was willing to share everything. It was in the middle of my exam period. So um, our GCSE exams, we studied for 10 exams. I had just finished maybe an English exam. I was staying at my grand's house at the time, who my grand, who was her mother, uh, lived nearer the school. And it was just easier to get to and from school. It was in the sort of the town next door to where I lived. I guess I was using MSN a lot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I talked to my friends about how exams went and the sort of uh, Nokia mobile phones and texting them. It was a day before a science exam. Um, and so I was, it was my day off, as, as it were, my day for revision. And my, I was sharing a room at my grand's house with my older sister, Mary, who I forget why she was staying there, but she'd crashed the night or something. Um, and it, she'd, it was like 10 a.m. And I think at this point I was really good at lions. So I was having a nice lie-in and I was asleep and I did not want to be woken up. Mary had received a call saying, well, to get up. Uh, like received a call, sounded sort of bad. I had no idea what was said on that phone call. At the time, I was thinking, you know, turn off the phone. Uh, she hung up and then said, Roz, get up. And I was like, no, no, like, I'm not getting up. It's my day off. So no, really, you need to get up. I think she may have said mum has gone to hospital, but I, I could tell that my sister isn't very serious at all at any moment in life. So um, hearing her be serious for that sort of split, you know, 10 seconds was like, oh, shit, what has happened? And so we got into the car and just, you know, for context before this point, I mum suffered from alcoholism, but I didn't, and I knew that maybe her health, she was a very slim woman still, but and she didn't really eat a lot, but her health was relatively, I had presumed anyway, not that bad. And I, I hadn't realised the extent of the damage she'd done to her body, I guess, over the years. But I just presumed that we would um, turn up to the hospital. You know, I, be, I remember being in the car on the way to the hospital. We, we booked a taxi because um, we didn't have a car there and none of us drove and, and so forth. And we got to the hospital and we went into the nurse's waiting room and it was me and um, maybe about six of us then. And I remember sitting in this room in silence and at this point thinking, oh, mum's just like, you know, she's just, she's sick or like, uh, you know, I had, I had absolutely no idea what the, what the specifics were other than mum had been taken to hospital. And so when the nurse came in, <laughs> it was a very weird moment. I'm only laughing because the nurse came into the room and handed my little sister a pamphlet that was like something to do with loss and said, oh, I'm so sorry. And we had no idea our mum had passed away. <laughs> sorry. I'm only laughing because I honestly believe that this nurse still thinks about this moment to this day. She must do because she, she handed my 13-year-old sister a pamphlet about loss and it felt like a, a skip from The Simpsons, you know, like, <laughs> like, like, it's like, oh, holy shit. And she goes, and Rachel, like, Rachel, my little sister at the time, obviously just burst into tears. Like, what the fuck? She had no idea what was going on. And the nurse's face just dropped and it was like, this is how you're telling us our mom has passed away by handing us a, a bloody pamphlet. Um, <laughs> so I'm glad I can still reflect on probably the worst day of my life and still laugh at that because it's like, oh God, that poor nurse. And even now I think like, I feel sorry for her rather than like, um, anyway. <laughs> uh, so she handed my little sister a pamphlet or something like that anyway. 
And at this point, obviously, that was how we found out. That was my first concrete moment that I realised that mum had had died. I think some of us sort of sat a bit stunned in silence, not really realising it. It all happened. It all felt like it happened. And I'm sure a lot of people that, that speak about, you know, sudden loss like this, like happened in five seconds. You know, we, we arrived at the hospital, we sat down and then they took us into the room and um, to, to see our mum. And she was on this sort of table in a dark room and, and she was dead. And the first time, not only the first time I see a dead body, the first time that I experienced any sort of grief, the first time that um, all of it happened within the space, what felt like five minutes. It may have been hours on reflection. I think it was maybe a couple of hours that we were waiting, that we got there and everything. And so, um, yeah, it was it was a very um, whirlwind morning in a, a horrible version of what a whirlwind is. I don't know what the equivalent is, but um, that, and the, the brief sort of comic relief of the nurse handing the pamphlet, and then that oh was God. that was that. Um, and I, I remember calling a few friends while I stood outside the hospital, trying to. How do you tell your friends at the age of sixteen that your mum has just died? I honestly, I. Again, the, the the feeling of like, I felt sorry for them. I'm like, I'm sorry, this is going to be quite hard for you to hear this, but um, I'm grappling with this now. Anyway, so that was, that was, that was the day. And then the rest of the day was pretty much a blur. Went back to my grand's house and me and my siblings stood out in the back of the garden, sat down and... Um, I had my sister's iPod and I think I was listening to sad music as if it was just an emo moment rather than like your parents dead. So, um, yeah, so um, totally normal. Uh, like some boy had just broken up with me and I was listening to like the fucking fray or something. Like I have no idea what I was listening to, but uh, like, it was, it was a weird, awful weird day. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember what your last conversation or interaction with her was like? It was a phone call and it was like the day before. Uh, and it was me her t- me telling her how my English exam went um, on the phone in the hallway. In my, I remember how I sat. Like I, I don't remember the precise words, but I remember her just asking me how the exam went and me, me explaining how it like, went really well and good luck for maths. And it was... You know, you don't exactly like, as you, you know, there's such a significant difference between sudden loss and loss that you can prepare for, both not for your, both for yourself as well as the person that is, uh, that you're losing. And so for me, I was lucky in that, you know, we didn't have some huge blow up argument the day before. And, you know, I think absolutely I would have like beat myself up for the rest of my life if that was the case, even though that's completely unfair. And it's, you know, you don't know when someone's going to die. And I, I know, I, I imagine on reflection, I would have, you know, had to remind myself, I'm like, you can't beat yourself up about that. But I was, you know, I was certainly lucky speaking to other people that have experienced sudden loss, you know, they wish that they could have had some, at least sort of generally nice last memory, but um, you can't control it. So, but yeah, I, I that phone call, um, and that that was it, really. In a way, there's something kind of poetic about the last kind of interaction that you had was about like a English exam, and now you're a writer. Is there any <laughs> significance there? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I I actually don't necessarily. I I like writing, but um, it wasn't necessarily a dream calling when I was a teenager. But um, 
I enjoy writing plays and putting on plays and things. And um, I, I do think my mum had a massive shape and influence on my just generally being a bit more politically engaged and writing. And, you know, my idealism came from her. Um, I'm, I'm also a massive cynic and sarcastic and a bit blunt, but my idealism that the world could be a bit better definitely came from my mum. And I wonder that that sort of often translates in my writing and, and my work. And yeah, certainly had an influence. She gets to live through you in that way. Yeah, definitely. I like to, yeah, um, think that. Mm. After she passed away, I know that your older sister became your legal guardian. How did the day-to-day look like? How much did it change for the rest of, you know, high school? Uh, I spent a lot of my teenage years looking after myself and and our siblings being quite independent. Not to say that the, our mother wasn't there at, the, at, at points, but, you know, we naturally were quite independent at this point because we knew how to look after ourselves. And so when my sister moved back in and became a legal guardian when she was about 22, and every so often I reflect on that and I think 22 is so young. And so she's, she became responsible for me and my two younger siblings. But what that meant mostly was, you know, we, we generally looked after ourselves, but she would come to, you know, parent, God, what's it called? When you go you go in and check up that your, like your kids are okay. teacher conference. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So she would come into that. We would maybe cook meals together every so often. But um, actually my little brother, who was like 14 or 15, suddenly became the house chef and he was cooking the family meals, <laughs> um, which actually weren't that bad on reflection. I still remember what he cooked. He was quite a good little chef. So we we uh, we sort of just all, all tipped in. Foster care, that absolutely could have been a reality. I think that I was lucky, I guess, in that we had older siblings and an, and an aunt who was is really close to our family that you know, we we could sort of rely on, on somebody else to come back into the house or for for something. But it was a bit weird that there wasn't more of a checkup on us afterwards, after our mama died. I had one interaction with a social worker at school and they came in and they sort of interviewed me and my two siblings together, which on reflection also should have all been individual interviews. But I, she sat us all down in a room and just wanted to make sure that we we hadn't like lost our shit or something. Or like she just wanted to make sure that we were like semi-sane. And I remember me and my siblings, again, <laughs> the family motto in the Warren household is like everyone pretend you're normal. So we were just like, guys, just pretend you're normal so they don't take us into care. <laughs> so, <laughs> so me and my siblings, me and my little brother and sister, just like, yeah, things are going okay. You know, we're doing, and I'm like, oh my god, like we should not be like prepping for this interview in that in that way. So, uh, yeah, we pretty much raised ourselves, but we had a lot of support from our older sister as well. So um, it was it was a weird couple of years before I went off to uni. Anyway, yeah. Was there anyone else that you had known that had gone through something even like close to it, or did you feel like you and your siblings' experience were just so isolated in that way? Completely isolated. I couldn't even think of a single person that had lost, like half them, not even lost, like a grandparent. You know, I yeah. not only do I have the additional layer of grappling with a parent with with addiction, with alcoholism, but you know the, that sort of side of things. Like I had absolutely no one. Um, and even when I went into university, I thought that maybe there would be a bit more of an understanding, someone with similar experience, but absolutely nothing there. I don't think I met anyone who had like, lost a parent until I was about 22. And then I not really ever talked to anyone about grief or loss. And I think that's why I'm quite a naturally emotional person anyway. So I can I can sort of tap into those those feelings. But um, 
I think there's a reason why I still feel why it took me so long to write about my mother and why I still get emotional is because it's I spent like five years completely bottling everything up. That's also the British way, you know. <laughs> British people like to suppress our feelings, so that is quite a normal <laughs> normal reaction as well. So when you when you deal with something traumatic like the loss of a parent, you know, the British way is just like everyone pretend it didn't happen and just don't talk about it. Um, so that's <laughs> uh, how how I grappled with it for a long time. Yeah. And did you and your siblings ever really talk about it a lot? I think we all dealt with it in our own very different ways. Humor about it was, you know, a, a big crutch for my family. Um, you know, and also we just grew up watching a lot of TV and a lot of movies. So like a lot of movie references. Uh, I don't know what it was, but I don't think we had a single like open, honest, normal conversation that you would expect for that family. Like, for example, <laughs> on the day of my mum's my funeral, we my little brother was 15 years old and we were in the what's it called the hearse right the the sort of mm-hmm. yeah we didn't know what the the wake was called uh, because obviously we were kids so I was like well how the hell are we meant to know what the wake is called so my little brother goes so and it goes really quiet he goes so are we going to the after party <laughs> <laughs> oh god and we've never <laughs> we've never dropped that <laughs> and I, I still <laughs> <laughs> so good. Like he just said it so innocently, and we were just oh. like, "Rich, it's, it's not an afterbite." <laughs> <laughs> oh, Rich, um, and like oh. we still take the piss out of him for that, and that was like, wow, <laughs> that was like over a decade ago. Um, oh. So just like as a as as an example of of the, how the Warrens uh, <laughs> deal with grief. So uh, yeah, so now I call wakes afterbites just for for the shit. Few contemporary TV series have been able to juxtapose lightness and darkness quite as well as BoJack Horseman. The fun animated style lends itself to an accessible kooky world of Hollywood, inhabited by humans and animals, celebrities and nobodies, and somewhere in between, like the character of BoJack Horseman, the show's anti-hero. The show's quick dialogue, visual gags, and colorful world makes the darker, deeper moments that much more profound. Bojack was a sitcom star in the 90s and has been fumbling through his career, his love life, and his addictions ever since. As a character, he's quite complex. His childhood traumas have reverberated through his life in a way that no amount of money, sex, or fame can fill the void of. If anything, it makes it quite worse. He has obviously a very complicated relationship with his parents in the TV show, and a lot, I I can't make comparisons in that for me, because um, his is a lot darker, I think. Bojack's late father, Butterscotch, was verbally abusive and physically abusive. He was an egotistical failed writer and alcoholic who took out his frustrations on both Bojack and Bojack's mother, Beatrice. Beatrice was a neglectful and bitter mother towards Bojack, often blaming him for how her life turned out, which is something that she inherited from her own mother. The character of Bojack, with his depression and his addictions, is largely a story about inheriting your parents' trauma and, despite being beaten down mentally and literally, still wanting to get their approval. And for any fans of BoJack Horseman, you know that an outrageously brilliant standalone concept episode per season is not uncommon. You find yourself watching an entire episode underwater or being immersed in a drug trip. And halfway through season five, I felt one coming, and that was with the episode entitled Free Churro. The episode opens with BoJack standing at a podium in front of his mom's casket speaking at her funeral. 
I stopped at a jack-in-the-box on the way here, and the girl behind the counter said, Hiya, are you having an awesome day? Not, how are you doing today? No, are you having an awesome day? Which is pretty shitty, because it puts the onus on me to disagree with her. Like, if I'm not having an awesome day, suddenly I'm the negative one. Usually when people ask how I'm doing, the real answer is, I'm doing shitty. But I can't say I'm doing shitty because I don't even have a good reason to be doing shitty. So if I say, I'm doing shitty, then they say, why? What's wrong? And I have to be like, I don't know, all of it. So instead, when people ask how I'm doing, I usually say, I am doing so great. But when this girl at the Jack in the Box asked me if I was having an awesome day, I thought, well, today, I'm actually allowed to feel shitty. Today, I have a good reason. So I said to her, well, my mom died. And she immediately burst into tears. So now I have to comfort her, which is annoying. And meanwhile, there's a line of people forming behind me who are all giving me these real judgy looks because I made the Jack in the Box girl cry. And she's bawling and she's saying, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, it's fine, it's fine. I mean, it's not fine, but you know, it's fine. And I would like to order a double Jack meal and I've kind of got somewhere to be, so maybe less with the crying and more with the frying, huh? And the girl apologizes again and she offers me a free churro with my meal. And as I'm leaving, I think, I just got a free churro because my mom died. No one ever tells you when your mom dies, you get a free churro. But as the episode continues, you realize that the entire episode is one giant monologue. Three minutes into it, I was like, oh, this isn't a cold open. This is like going to be the entire episode. Did you think that as well? Yeah. And I love that. I, it was so different. Um, they've just handled that episode so, so well. And it's something so... Um, just to have him talking for, you know, 20, 20 minutes was just, yeah, so brilliantly done. The humour, obviously, is by Jack Horseman, so it's obviously going to be still be a funny episode. So um, the sort of dark humour, the, the crutch of humour that anyone deals with a lot of, you know, any form of grief, like that's that was something that... Um, so whenever Bojack in, in, in any episodes ever talks about death... It always, uh, that is actually quite relatable. <laughs> the sort of like off the off the cuff sort of dark comments. But there's a lot of things in the episode that really stand out. So he, he stood there for 20 minutes talking to a coffin, you know, having this conversation and the idea of it being a constantly unfinished conversation. That, that really sort of hit home, this idea that the conversation was never, never going to be how he wants it to be. He's never going to hear what he wants to hear from his mum. And there's the idea throughout the whole episode of him interpreting and misinterpreting her words, um, not only with the ICU line, but um, just with their entire relationship, I think. They, he never really understood her. And and that theme of misinterpreting um, who she was and, and what she said plays out in the entire episode of the ICU uh, motive. Uh, where he, you know, her last words in the hospital are "I see you," and then he later realizes, sort of half, almost near the end, midway of the episode, "I see you," as in she's in the intensive care, <laughs> intensive care unit, and I'm like, oh god, that killed me. But <laughs> you know, the shittiest thing about all of this is when that stranger behind the counter gave me that free churro. That small act of kindness showed more compassion than my mother gave me her entire goddamn life. Like, how hard is it to do something nice for a person? This woman at the jack-in-the-box didn't even know me. I'm your son. All I had was you. I have this friend, and right around when I first met her, her dad died. And I actually went with her to the funeral. And months later, she told me that she didn't understand why she was still upset, because she never even liked her father. It made sense to me, because I went through the same thing when my dad died. And I'm going through the same thing now. 
You know what it's like? It's like that show Becker, you know, with Ted Danson. I watched the entire run of that show, hoping that it would get better, and it never did. It had all the right pieces, but it just, it couldn't put them together. And when it got canceled, I was really bummed out. Not because I liked the show, but because I knew it could be so much better, and now it never would be. And that's what losing a parent is like. It's like Becker. Suddenly you realize you'll never have the good relationship you wanted. And as long as they were alive, even though you'd never admit it, part of you, the stupidest goddamn part of you, was still holding on to that chance. And you didn't even realize it until that chance went away. My mother is dead and everything is worse now. Because now I know I will never have a mother who looks at me from across the room and says, Bojack Horseman, I see you. And there's, there were so many sort of lines and things in that episode that um, that really stood out. The whole, my mother is dead and everything is worse now. And, you know, he's saying that in, in response to his, when his mother was at their father's um, funeral, at her husband's funeral. And she said, my husband is dead and everything is worse now. And he said, and, you know, Bojack is reflecting on that and, and saying, like, I guess uh, that's the sort of thing she would want to hear at her own funeral. My mother is dead and everything is worse now. For me, it really, really captured the complicated feelings that you have when someone dies in that whether your relationship was... Relationships are complicated, right? So the, how you feel about someone in their death and and, so, and how you grieve is going to be complicated. And it, I related to aspects of it because I had such a, you know, not all ter- a complicated relationship with, with my mother in that. And again, not entirely relatable because, in a, you know, he, he really has such a really difficult relationship with his mother in the, in the TV show. Um, whereas mine was, you know, happy and sad. The the way that it depicts the complicated feelings when someone dies, and again, I think that it was rare for Bojack Horseman to address that in the way that it did. It didn't sort of and sort of sugarcoat it, and, and the characters died, and it's it's and moved on quickly. He's that he's trying to grapple with how he really feels about it and, and what he's meant to say and how he's meant to be at this funeral. He doesn't know. Um, and that was that was all, you know, elements of that were really, really relatable and, and sort of hit home. There was oh, the amazing line where they're like, my mother knew what it was like to spend your life feeling like you're drowning, except those very brief moments in which you can suddenly remember that you can swim. And he's, he's talking about that with his one happy memory of his mum. You know, the first time I ever performed in front of an audience actually was uh, with my mom. She used to put on these shows with her supper club in the living room, and she used to make she used to make me sing the lollipop song. And those parties, they were really something. There were skits and magic acts and ethnically insensitive vaudeville routines, and the big finale was always a dance my mother did. She had this beautiful dress that she only brought out for these parties, and she did this incredible number. It was so beautiful and sad. Dad hated the parties. He'd lock himself in the study and bang on the walls for us to keep it down. But he always came out to see Mom dance. He'd linger in the doorway, scotch in hand, and watch in awe as this cynical, despicable woman he married took flight. And as a child who was completely terrified of both my parents, I was always aware that this moment of grace, it meant something. We understood each other in a way, me and my mom and my dad. As screwed up as we all were, we did understand each other. My mother, she knew what it's like to feel your entire life like you're drowning. 
with the exception of these moments, these very rare brief instances in which you suddenly remember you can swim. And it's, again, that, like, that really was like quite a visceral moment with my own mother, you know, knowing that she, she grappled with sort of deep depression and there were moments in which she could sort of be well and be happy and be good. And I think that's sort of relatable with anyone with, with, with sort of mental, mental uh, illnesses or, or depression and everything. I think that, you know, you constantly feel like you're drowning until there's brief moments where you're actually doing okay. And for me personally, there was a there was a, a segment on the on the episode about orphans, <laughs> and it said something like, uh, he's, "He's talking about when he's horsing around TV show. He's talking about the writing horsing around." It says something like, "Maybe don't mention orphans because audiences see it as sad and not relatable." <laughs> and, <laughs> and you're like, "Wait, was, no," <laughs> <laughs> which is just perfect. But then yeah. and then Bojack Horseman's like, but I don't see it that way. I see it they're being lucky because they can imagine their parents to be anything they wanted is actually something to long for. For actually as an orphan my entire adult life, it was like I in a weird way, I know what he was saying because obviously he, you know, he was like, it would have been easier if my parents were just dead and I could just imagine some version of them. How you sort of see someone after they die is all in your head. It's all how you, the memories that you form around them and how does shape how they sort of live on, I guess. And so for me, like the idea of losing a parent quite young, like I've constantly shifted ideas of what my parents are like in my head over the over the last decade. But like the idea that it's is you're <laughs> you're lucky because you don't have to deal with all of that crap is something that in a in a really dark way is like sort of relatable. <laughs> like I think like it's a sort of a good thing. Like I guess like you can sort of just have this imagined version of them and you don't have to you know, if you completely ignore all the sort of knock on like that's obviously not based on reality, but um yeah, his idea that it was it was something to long for was um, made me laugh <laughs> in, a, in a really dark Bojack Horseman <laughs> way. Yeah, I just really, really loved that episode. I love what they did with it. And how they did that with just 20 minutes with a talking horse is beyond me. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. What aspect of your life do you think that the entire experience of losing your mom has kind of affected the most, if you can pinpoint it? how I deal with relationships and friendships and um, how I interact with people, I think. Having such a up, upheaval, you know, life-changing moment as a kid certainly shaped me as a person. I know that's probably really cliche to say, but um, it's, it, you know, I, I how I navigate my life now, I, I'm, I'm less fearful, I think, about... Um, I'm less fearful about death. That was actually a really significant thing that I've only really just come to terms with recently in the last couple of years is that dealing with death at such, uh, you know, like young, young, young age has for some reason made me completely unafraid of death. You become, I, I read an interview recently with somebody who said that they they'd lost their mum at a young age and they said that they felt almost like invincible because nothing could hurt them as much as that. Mm-hmm. Nothing could hurt them as much as losing a parent. Um, and so they felt like they were in, invisible. It adds a different um, a layer to how I handle things emotionally and and with with closeness and with relationships and who I choose to let come close to in my life and who um, who I hold up walls to. And and losing my mom at that age made me. Um, I, I think I was already quite observant and a good listener and and somebody who could sort of read the room well. 
Um, and I mean that in the sense of like going out with someone with alcoholism, you you know, you, you have to deal with knowing what sort of moods are going to be when you come in and you can instantly read a room. And I think having that paired with um, the sudden loss of not having somebody in your life and being able to read people. And I think my mum's death sort of shaped how emotional I am as a, as a person today in a in a good way and observant about people and I, I, I care about them and I, I want them to be happy and I want myself to be happy and wonder how much um, my life would be different if she was still alive. Mm. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know how wildly different it would be, but it sort of heightened what I had existing already, I think. And because she shaped a lot of that as well. Like uh, when she was alive, she did shape me to be compassionate and empathetic and, and, and all of these things. And I think, her loss just sort of really, really sort of heightened that and, and brought it more to the forefront. It did have a knock-on effect in some ways of, of being self-critical and, and confidence levels. Um, and now if I am ever confident, I I, I don't apologise if, if I am confident in my in my work or, or how I am or things I want to do because, you know, I spent a long time sort of beating myself up, I guess. For romantic relationships, it wasn't so much that I was attracted to people that I thought I could, you know, fix, as it were. I've been very, if if anything, the opposite. I was very attracted to people that have very stable, normal, (laughs) (laughs) like, like, stable parents. Like, uh, you know, everyone I've dated have had, you know, sort of stable uh, upbringings and, and was sort of generally put together dudes and like that was something that I almost think I went the opposite rather than trying to fix someone I I I was naturally drawn to people who were very nice and very caring and very sweet um and I've been lucky that for most of my relationships as generally long-term relationships has generally been the way because I'm drawn to people that I I sort of had maybe the qualities I didn't necessarily you know like loving stable all of that sort of thing I was in a relationship from the age of 16 17 to about 21 and that was like, I basically started, I didn't date him when my mother died, but afterwards, and we were in a long-term relationship for that age. Like not many people were in such a long relationship at that age. And I think a part of that was while, you know, I did love him and we had a good relationship. It came at a time when I just experienced a huge loss and like having a stable person in my life who was loving and caring and cared for me, you know, that probably did play a part in it. The reason why we stayed together for so long, you know, that that was something mm-hmm. that... Um, on reflection I can look at now and I'm like even though I very much we had a great relationship I like to think regardless and it wasn't like the reason we were together I think what kept me wanting to keep that relationship going for so long was because I think uh, in part to do with to do with my loss and I'm curious if if you found you know either you know as a teenager as an adult any resources that have been helpful for you about you know the surviving children whose parents have like passed away from complications involving alcoholism and uh, parents who had depression. I'm curious if there's like any resources that you have found useful. No, (laughs) Uh, that sounds really blunt. And I'm sure uh, I know that there are, for me personally, I didn't really get to benefit from a lot of resources growing up. Um, I think, um, you know, I think the reason also why I, I, I love this this podcast and this idea is that genuinely, like watching TV and movies with, you know, there is a therapeutic thing to some of that. I know that's not professional help and I know that's not professional support or anything that I would advise to anyone else. But for me personally, 
dealing with loss and grief and like the sort of how that's reflected in pop culture and my understanding of of grief and dealing with it did come a lot uh, come a lot from from pop culture and, and tv and movies now that i've done some research there are a couple of charities here in the uk um, you know, you Google sort of like bereaved kids, bereaved parents or, or whatever. There are, there are some charities that they're, they're not very particularly well funded. While they do have some resources, it's, a lot of it is, I personally, I have tried therapy once um, for a short period. It wasn't necessarily right for me. I know that maybe at a later stage, it might be better suited if I'm the right therapist, but it's not something that I, I personally like really benefited from Um but so I think, you know, that was something that I tried in terms of professional and I've I've read about grief, but um, there is there is really <laughs> such a dearth of information. I think um, the reason I say pop culture is not necessarily that I think there's been very many good depictions. Um, I'm, I'm, I then just sort of became fascinated with, with how orphans are depicted in popular culture and how they are everywhere, mm. but no one has ever actually like, you know, from Harry Potter to Batman to every single Disney prince, you know, everything is, is the depiction of orphans. So, um, I don't necessarily mean about the depiction of, of grief and, and losing a parent in pop culture. I just mean this sort of, I guess, <laughs> like escapism, uh, or, um, I guess, um, the relationships that I, I form with characters and TV shows and and uh, that side of things and being able to talk for me me and my siblings as I say we we don't talk about grief but we do talk about TV and movies and for us that is genuinely a way that we um, have communicated over the years and I think you know post our mother dying is a way that we still that's our version of having close conversations yeah um, and I know that doesn't make sense for a lot of people no but that, it makes for me, so much sense. <laughs> Um, because you can like, is... talk about the thing without actually talking about the thing. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, yeah, that's probably not the most, I'm sure there's, there's someone listening that is thinking, you know, <laughs> like, no. get some professional help. But <laughs> I'm like, no. <laughs> uh, for me, that's that was a big part of, you know, the last decade of is watching a lot of things and, and yeah, dealing with it in that way. In all honesty, like I, I still look back at my childhood with an alcoholic parent. I don't even know necessarily what could have been done. And that's why it's difficult, I think, to think of advice because other than, you know, encouraging my mother and those around her to support her to get the help that she would need, you know, the resources that would be available. But beyond that, it's it's uh, it's really difficult to, to prescribe ad- advice, I guess. In, in, I'm st- I, only because I look back at it and I'm like, I don't know necessarily beyond sort of having a bit more conversation with my friends, what could have really been done? And that mm. sounds really depressing uh, and not, not again, not very practical, helpful advice. To know that it's going to get, listen, I know that's always, always cliche, isn't it? It's going to get better, it's all, but it, it's true. Like you, you will get through it and there's only so much you can do. The weight is not on your shoulders yeah. to fix your parent, you know, or to fix the situation. You are, you are a kid, you know, you are a young person who is still nav- trying to understand the world and navigate your life. For me, what a big thing that I did, which I, you know, I, I wish I didn't, was to try and put the weight on my shoulders and be like, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to sit with my mum and tell her why she shouldn't be depressed I'm going to explain to her why she shouldn't be drinking and I was like I was 13 years old like what the hell am I doing like that should not have been a thing that I should have been doing at at that age I should have gone do you know what I'm going to call my aunt and tell her to come around or I'm going to 
um, you know, do something that's practical rather than get caught in a spin cycle that you are going to fix your parents because you are not. They need to get professional support and help and it's not on the children to do that, mm-hmm. basically. that that That's the kind of crux of it. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead. If you want to find out more about Rosalind, you can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Rosalind Warren. That's R-O-S-S-A-L-Y-N and then Warren, like the last name of our future president. I'm posting a few extras from this episode on the Patreon page at patreon.com slash deadmomcast, including an additional pop culture representation segment about The Good Wife, And to the public, I'm posting some of Rosalind's work that we discussed in the episode, including the Guardian piece about having an alcoholic parent. I'm Brittany Ashley, and you can follow me at Brit27Ash, that's B-R-I-T-T 27-A-S-H, on Twitter and Instagram. Or you can go to my website at BrittanyAshleyFunny.com. The music is by Interstellar Sarah Michelle Geller, and the logo is by Christine Tuna.